Hello, my creative brothers and sisters, Sourdough here. And I want to tell you about some cool new things we got for you at notrealart.com. We just launched our artist education program where you can learn and grow your arts career. We call it the Not Real Art School. Not Real Art School features five free courses with top artists and business experts, all who spoke at our Creators Conference in 2019. Our free courses include important business topics for any artist, such as how to protect your art, how to market your art, how to license your art, and even how to pitch your ideas in Hollywood. Our Not Real Art School program also contains free career advice from top artists who tell you how they achieve success in their careers. These artists include Jorge Gutierrez, Logan Hicks, Julie B., and Human. Take advantage of this empowering content today. Just visit notrealart.com and click on the school link to get access to this valuable educational content. And the best part is, it's all free. Yes, free. So you have nothing to lose and everything to gain. Visit notrealart.com today to learn this important business knowledge and grow your arts career. Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast, where we celebrate creative culture and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Sourdough. My esteemed co-host, the one and only Man One, is on assignment today, so yet again, it's just me and you. But today's episode, I'm stoked. I'm really excited to talk to our artist today, and uh, I've been a fan of his work for a long time. Robert Glenn Ketchum is a photographer whose work has helped to save precious uh, wilderness areas around the planet. I'm a big outdoors guy, love camping, love exploring, love canoeing and so on and so forth. And so, you know, protecting wilderness areas and protecting endangered species to me is really important. So having Robert Glenn Ketchum on the podcast today is a real honor. Robert and I happen to be members of the Explorers Club. And uh, so that's sort of how we connected. But I've been a fan of his work for a long, long time. I first came across his work probably in 1988 when I was working as a production assistant at a publishing company uh, outside Chicago. And uh, we specialized in books that had to do with, you know, camping and mountaineering and rafting and all these outdoor activities. And, you know, Robert's been in the game for a long time. He's got a ton of books. And I remember seeing his work, you know, when I was 18 and just blown away by it. And so to have him on the show today uh, is a real honor. But uh, Robert's story is awesome. I mean, the guy, you know, he's from LA, went to UCLA. I mean, he basically came up as a photographer shooting on the Sunset Strip. I mean, he shot The Doors, he shot Cream, he shot Jimi Hendrix, (laughs) he shot Donovan, he shot Traffic, he shot, you know, I mean, on and on. But somehow along the way, He got activated around wilderness conservation and his work has helped to save precious wilderness areas from development, from mining and from commercial interests. He's done uh, 
some incredible work. And I, you've probably seen his work because he's been around for a long time. And he's even doing really cool stuff in terms of taking his photography and turning it into textiles. And that's a really interesting part of the conversation, too. So, you know, definitely uh, tune in for this one because it's fantastic. You're going to dig it. I know I enjoyed it. And uh, without further ado, let's get into this with Robert Glenn Ketchum. Robert Glenn Ketchum, welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, have uh, Are you a podcast fan? Uh, have you, Do you listen to podcasts? I do listen to some podcasts, yeah. I'm not a, a, like a rabid tech head, and so I, I only indulge in things that I really want to listen to or learn from, especially things re- relating to the natural science of the planet. And those are the things I, you know, climate change and uh, animal population decline and things like that. The stuff that my work also pays attention to, you know, that sort of informs my work. For sure. Have you have you been on uh, a podcast, a guest on a podcast before? I have not. Whoa, this is your first? Well, and I don't know if you consider a Zoom session. I did a Zoom session last week with the ILCP, and it was worldwide, but it wasn't exactly a podcast. It was a panel of four presenting our ideas about campaigns we worked on. And it was for other photographers worldwide. And, and the four of us that were on the panel all had various campaigns that we were working on and our photographs were essential to the campaign. So we were explaining to other photographers how we worked in those relationships and, and the benefit of being in them when you're involved in a, in a big national campaign. For instance, like my efforts to stop the Pebble Mine in Alaska, there's a, an on-the-ground coalition of small groups. There's a sort of mid-level bunch of uh, players uh, like Orvis, the outdoor fishing group, and Tiffany, the jewelers, who is, you know, they've said they won't buy gold from the Pebble Mine. And then the overarching group that I'm working with is the Natural Resources Defense Council, which is the largest NGO by membership in the United States. And it brings each of those levels of partnership, bring different plays to the game. On the ground in the villages, it's the native fishermen that are protesting the mine face to face. And then in New York, it's being with Tiffany and Orvis and some of the other Tommy Hilfiger. It's being done through their radio podcasts and through their blog sites and through the things they do with their advertising. And within RDC, it was a whole new campaign strategy where they had the money to take out full page ads in major newspapers and go after the companies that were underwriting the mine and attack their shareholders and embarrass their shareholders. And we got all of those companies to pull out of the campaign. So the mine and the company that wants to build it still exist, but nobody, there's no funding. <laughs> there's, no, there's no investors that want to get in it with NRDC when NRDC is running full page ads in a newspaper. You know, that's the New York Times and Washington Post. A lot of people see those ads Mitsubishi was one of the first companies to abandon it because we said, you know, here's all the products under the Mitsubishi label brand. Don't buy them. If these guys want to build this mine, don't don't let them do it. Don't buy their products. Mitsubishi was gone two weeks later. They wanted anything to do with that kind of negative advertising. So, you know, it's a very effective way to work it. And it was dreamed up by the senior attorney at uh, NRDC. 
And, you know, I'm lucky enough to be a good friend of his. And we started using my on ground photographs and his blogs and these ads in these newspapers. And it's been an incredibly effective campaign. But you could have never done that at a grassroots level. Right. Well, it sounds like you're sort of attacking it from both ends. I mean, you've got the people on the front lines there in Alaska, as well as you're attacking them or you're focusing on the marketplace. And if you can squash demand. Yeah. No. And, and I think it's that multi-prong that's even though Trump has been completely supportive of the mine, I think it's that multi-prong attack that is being staged against its building that has confounded it all this time and nothing's gone forward. For our listeners' sake who may not be familiar with what's happening there at the Pebble Mine, give us a quick update and summary as to, you know, what the hell is happening there right now. Well, Southwest Alaska, first of all, is a place that most probably couldn't find on a map. I mean, they, they just don't know what that even means, Southwest Alaska. But it's a vast area. It's millions and millions of acres. It's three national parks, a national wildlife refuge, and the largest state park in North America. So it's it's huge. Most people couldn't name the parks. They're national parks, but they couldn't name them. They would know Katmai because that's the famous park with the bears where you can go look at bears. And so they would know the bears more than they would even recognize Katmai. But Lake Clark National Park, what? And Togiak National Wildlife Refuge. And so the first thing to do, and, and then all of those drain into Bristol Bay, which is the most productive commercial fishery in North America. And there's a billion dollar industry there that renews itself annually. It employs over uh, 2,000 people in three states. It employs a huge percentage of the native population of Southwest. And then there's all the parks, which draw in a lot of visitation and and especially Katmai. I mean, it's ridiculous what they charge for, for a bed space at Katmai because it's so in demand to be there during the height of the bear season. Everybody wants to come from everywhere in the world to see these bears and not have to be afraid of them, you know? And so the the first thing I wanted to do, and the Pebble Mine hadn't even been announced yet, was I saw the fishery resource and I saw the potential to, like we had all of our other fisheries, overfish it. And so the first book I wrote was in 2000, and it was called Southwest Alaska, um, The Last Great Salmon Fishery. And it talks about Bristol Bay issues and about fishing regulation issues, and those sorts of things. And then that huge drainage that supports that salmon fishery comes down two or three principal rivers and then hundreds of smaller ones. But the principal ones come out of very particular headwater areas. And one of those headwater areas was Wood Tick Chick State Park, which is the largest state park in North America. And I, I flew over the park a couple of times and just thought it was spectacular and decided I wanted to do a book on the park. And so that book came out in 2004, and just before it came off press, Pebble Mine Consortium Northern Dynasty, which is a Canadian company, announced that it wanted to build the largest open pit gold and cyanide leach mine in the history of the world in the headwaters of the largest of the rivers, the productive rivers, the Kwechek. So the the mine would be two miles across and 2,000 feet deep. It would be spread out theoretically over a period of 20 years in its construction and use and viability. And it would have 26 square hectares of toxic tailing slurry ponds from all the pumping that they would have to do in order to create the mine. And they were going to, the earthen dams holding them back would be bigger than the ones that dammed the Three Rivers Gorge. I mean, talk about scale. And in one of the most seismically active earthquake zones in the world. (laughs) 
what could go wrong? Yeah, just so so completely wrong that um, immediately I took the two books and combined the work in them and put out a show called Southwest Alaska, A World of uh, Parks and Refuges at the Crossroads and began the No, Be no Pebble Mine campaign. And I began it as a blog in 2006. And I was working with a, a number of Alaskan coalitions because I was on the board of one of the big Alaska Conservation Foundation, big Alaska nonprofit non that works on conservation issues in state. I was on that board for nine years. And so I'd come to know most of the players and the, and the native groups that were involved and the fisheries groups that were involved. And then as I traveled back and forth between the lower 48 and Alaska, I began to think we need to get bigger players in the lower 48 involved. This is, this is going to take more than just the on the ground group that I, I know in Alaska. They don't, they don't have enough reach yet and they don't have enough followers and the word isn't out. So that's when Orvis and Hilfiger and Tiffany's got drawn in because I knew people at, at the, at those places. And then I can, you know, NRDC has an office here in Santa Monica. It's their West Coast office. And the senior attorney is also West Coast director. And he's a brilliant guy that I've known most of my life. His name is Joel Reynolds. And Joel and I were involved in a campaign in Baja to protect lagoon where the whales birth, Magdalena Bay, which in fact, Mitsubishi wanted to put a salt, big salt extraction plant in. And we went head to head with Mitsubishi. And this is 10 years ago, 12 years ago now. We went head to head with Mitsubishi and finally re resorted to the ad campaign in the newspapers. And boy, when we published that one listing, all of their subsidiary products and, you know, don't buy Kawasai refrigerators, don't buy LNG dishwashers, you know, don't those kinds of things. They just were like out of it. We don't want to have this kind of bad publicity for our overall corporation and the salt plant's not worth it. And they withdrew. And St. Ignacio Lagoon was protected finally and put into world biosphere status. So I, I've been asking Joel to get involved in the Pebble Mine campaign and bring in the big audience of NRDC. And Joel was worried that the Alaskans would feel like an outside group was coming in and being the 800 pound gorilla. And, you know, we're going to take over this campaign because you grassroots groups are too small. And instead, he worked his way into it slowly and he made friends with most of the leaders of the various groups so that they would know what his intention was. And then he basically stayed out of the state fought issues and the ballot issues and went to work on running these newspaper campaigns again and starting to attack one after another the investment groups that were in the Northern Dynasty shareholders circle. And the first one to back out was Mitsubishi. And then we got Rio Tinto, which is one of the biggest mining groups in the world. And they backed out. And Joel's so smart, he even ran an ad after that. These ads are million dollar pages. You know, you take out a full page in the New York Times, you're paying out some serious cash to do that. And he took out an ad after they withdrew saying, Rio Tinto, thank you for withdrawing. We hope the other shareholders and other investors recognize your insight and follow suit. And Anglo-American, it's time for you to get out. And a year later, Anglo-American bailed out, you know. So it's, it's very effective to put them up in front of their shareholders and call out a, a losing operation. The mine ostensibly may not make any money. 
and it's going to cost billions to build and it could destroy a fishery that already is worth billions. So it's not a good equation. And we had to uh, figure out a variety of ways to bring that out to the larger public. So everything, blogs, online presence, the newspaper ads, the local groups doing in-state protests, showing up at every state board meeting, you know, the whole rigmarole, grassroots campaigning and nationwide campaigning all mixed into one huge machine trying to stop this very, very potentially destructive construction. It's classic, right? I mean, you definitely need that sort of comprehensive integrated communications plan that attacks those those, uh, pressure points, right? And that ad that you talked about him thanking Rio Tinto and then, you know, putting pressure. I mean, that was a a master move there. That was a master stroke. Yeah. And I I have to say that the West Coast and the East Coast boards don't always agree with each other. And the East Coast is the home office. office. And so very often, you know, Joel will say he wants to do something and they'll they won't be on board with it. And he and he doesn't do it. But they have totally been on board with these ad campaigns and they get it and they see the effectiveness of it. And I'm flattered to be part of the campaign because there there are virtually no other groups that could afford these kinds of ads. You know, you've got to have a huge base to draw from in order to have these kinds of, you know, uh, pools of cash to spend on something like that. Well, let's be clear, right? These are these are the same tactics, strategies and tactics that the big companies use to sell the politicians sell the, the the citizens on the idea of the mine in the first place, right? So you know this, right? So like, let's let's fight fire with fire. No, it's 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 been a really interesting campaign. Obviously, the company is still viable in Canada, although they don't have any financial support. They're still there, and so we're kind of holding ground and hoping that the election changes everything, because Biden would, you know have the EPA cancel the air and water permits right away. And he would restore the original protected status that Obama bestowed on Bristol Bay Fishers and Trump rescinded it. And so those things would all go back into place, I think, relatively quickly. I first became familiar with Bristol Bay probably in around around 1996 or 97. I was doing, actually, I was living in Chicago at the time and was doing a lot of work in terms of brand strategy, brand identity design, packaging design for a, actually an international branding agency there in Chicago. And I had gone to the Natural Products Expo here in Anaheim. Of course, that was when, you know, Natural Products is a huge show now. But back in the, that day, it was a smaller show. Uh, Organic Valley was a client of mine at the time. But I had met, I was walking the, the aisles there at the show, and there was this very small, very charming little booth couple of old grizzly kind of salty dogs, uh, you know, guys are sitting behind the booth. Alaskan. <laughs> exactly. And and they were serving the salmon, you know, and, oh, and it was, yeah. yeah, it was called the Wildcatch was the brand. And so I, I tried the salmon and it was just, you know, melted in my mouth. It was amazing. And so I started talking to these guys and they start telling me this really tragic and horrific story about how farm fishing was killing their business. These guys were, you know, OG uh, salmon fishermen from Bristol Bay area, and they saw what was happening and they started to educate me about the dangers of uh, farm fishing and uh, what that would do. And so anyway, long story short, we ended up doing a pro bono project for them because the idea was, well, okay, we have to start 
tying red root ribbons around this very special, fresh, wild product and get people uh, educated about the difference between wild and farmed. And not just from a taste profile perspective, but from an ecological uh, impact perspective. And that started this, this, you know, it was a great project. I wonder how those guys are doing today. But but it kind of gets back to this other idea about the importance of communication and branding. I mean, I wonder, you know, this phrase blood diamonds, right? Blood diamonds were attached to, you know, the, the, the diamonds brought in from Africa using child labor and, and, and all kinds of horrible tactics. You know, and I don't know to what extent that phrase blood diamonds changed that culture, changed that industry. I think it did have an impact. But, but, but that's what you, I mean, that's what you guys are doing, right? You're trying to, to brand this and communicate about this mine and suppress demand. And, and protect the wild fishery. And, and with regard to that, if you've ever done a side-by-side farmed salmon and wild sockeye, it's the difference between like a really fine steak and um, a piece of slimy fish. You know, I mean, sockeye salmon is like a meaty, really flavorful, you know, thing in your mouth. And lox, to me, is is only great if you got a lot of cream cheese. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Otherwise, it's just a slimy fish on top of a bagel. You know, that's to me, that's the difference. And I living on the West Coast grew up probably seeing more wild salmon than than most. And then when I got up to Alaska, the natives they smoke it and they, and they can it and they, you know, it's part of their winter reserve. And a lot of times they do some really crazy stuff with, they'll, they'll, they'll put it in with chilies and, 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 you know, with heavy smoke and all that other kind of stuff. And when I go into the villages and take pictures and interview people and whatever, giving you something was always part of the, when you went to leave, they would give you something. A couple of times I got given beautiful pieces of men jewelry. The, the men wear bracelets and rings like the Navajo do. And the men wear the jewelry and the women wear the clothing, right? That's the way the tribes work. And uh, most of the time I got offered uh, dried fish, jerky of some kind, salmon jerky, you know, halibut jerky, or small cans of smoked sockeye or whatever they happen to have. And they, you know, throw a bunch of them into a paper bag and, and say, have fun with this when you're camping, you know. And so I, I became, after a couple of years of working in the Tongass, which was my first Alaskan project, I became a complete, you know, wild salmon addict and wild halibut, fresh caught halibut. Oh, my God. Some 10 or 12 years later, I got turned on to Southwest Alaska and I began the Southwest project. And the very first thing we did was we went to a, uh, I mean, literally the very first night in town when my assistant and I landed in Dillingham, we got invited to a bachelorette party for the Russian Orthodox daughter who was getting married. And she was like one of the only white girls in the village. And yet all of the Yupik and the Aliyu go to the Orthodox church. And so they're all friends. And so it was, it was her bachelorette, and she was sitting there in the chair in the middle of the room, and all of the Indian women were sitting around her in a circle, and they, she got lap danced and everything else, and it was a hysterical party. And when the woman whose house it was thrown in saw my assistant, which is, was Ted Turner's son, Rhett Turner, and I eating the food on the table, she came over and she said, 
do you like Indian food? And I said, yo, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I haven't had any really good Indian food for a couple of years now because I haven't been working in the Tongass. And so I'm, I'm loving this, you know, palette out here tonight. And so when we went to leave, she gave us a case of smoke jars, small smoke jars, of about five or six different mixes that she'd created. And she said, you, you take these when you're out kayaking. And she said, this is power food. And I was like, oh, my God, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what a gift. I mean, that's uh, almost a priceless experience right there. Well, and, you know, it's the reason I – another yet another reason I want to defend the fishery. It's not only a great American business – but it's a product that I actually love to like. <laughs> exactly. You know? It's not completely selfless here. Uh, we want to keep eating this food. And then there's, there's all kinds of other stuff in Bristol Bay, too. There's one of the largest herring catches in the world, red crab, all kinds of North Pacific fish, cod, and things like that. So it isn't just the salmon fishery, but the sockeye salmon fishery is the largest single catch ever recorded. And it was recorded this year, which means the fishery is healthier than ever. Oh, that's wonderful news. That's wonderful news. And I was going to ask about that because I was fearing that maybe the the, the catch would be down. But uh, that's great. Yeah. Largest largest catch in, in recorded history. Fantastic. Fantastic. The fishery groups are doing a good job in spite of the fact that they're threatened by the mine's possible development. The fisheries themselves are doing a good job. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the dirty truth here, right, is that unfortunately, as uh, it seems that to me anyway, that as human beings continue to you know, to populate the planet, want to develop markets so that capitalism can grow and consumption can grow. Our natural habitats are under constant threat. I mean, you'll 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 extinguish this fire, you'll win this battle, but we haven't won the war. There's more battles, more fires popping up. Yeah, and we were speaking earlier about climate change, and that's the universal threat. I mean. It's going to warm Bristol Bay and probably push the salmon farther north. It's already driven the walruses so far north that they can't be hunted anymore by the villages. They're, they're now too far north trying to stay on ice flows. The villages can't cross that open water by boat. So it's an ever-changing world, and it'll be curious to see what, say, between now and 2030, you know, 10 years of time, what that evolution is going to look like because it's going to be very strange. Yes. Well, you know, it, it's it's interesting. I mean, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, because as an artist, I mean, you're a photographer, a very accomplished, world-renowned photographer, but, you know, you're an activist and you're an advocate uh, for so many important environmental and social causes, political causes, what have you. And, you know, artists, and you've been very effective in terms of using your art to help drive change and so on and so forth. And I think there's a lot of artists out there right now that have so much energy and so much passion and they want to make change. They want to use their art, you know, strategically, effectively to, to help impact change. And maybe they don't know exactly how to do it, or maybe they're working hard, but maybe they're not working smart, right? In terms of how they can leverage their power as an artist to make change. Can you wax poetic a little bit in terms of uh, of, of your formula for success in terms of how you as an artist have found success in terms of driving change using your art? In some ways, I stumbled into it. I never much used a camera until I got into my freshman year at UCLA. And I had gone to a, a, a very prep boarding school for high school. And so arts wasn't even part of the program. And at UCLA, I had in-depth requirements regarding how many units of art had to be taken to graduate. 
And I actually feared those units more than the other classes because I'd never done anything, you know, in, in the arts before. And I saw that the photography program was within the arts at UCLA. It wasn't like some sort of technical class. It was an art class. And I thought, you know, it wouldn't hurt to, you know, use a camera. I mean, that I can do. And, I, you know, and I could have fun with that. And so I took a photography course and it was 1966 and the Sunset Strip was blowing up. You know, we had hometown groups like the Birds and and the Seeds and, you know, people like that in town. And then we had visiting groups like Cream and Jimi Hendrix and whatever. Quit, quit bragging, uh, please, Robert. Well, was, quit bragging. Know, That's amazing. Seventy. It was a it was a run of amazing music. Everybody had to come to L.A. I mean, that's just the way it was playing out. I mean, you, you you definitely wanted to go to New York and all those other places too, but you had to come to L.A. And I realized that I got lucky, and I I met the Doors before Morrison was even part of the band, and I got invited by a girlfriend's girlfriend to come watch these guys play in a garage here in Manhattan Beach where I'm living now. And, you know, they weren't especially great. And then Morrison joined the group. And initially he wanted them to play music behind his poetry recital. And that didn't go so well. But he he realized that he liked the sound and that he could retool some of his lyrics and make songs rather than poetry readings and go about that. So, you know, I was there when they performed for the first time at Gazari's on the Sunset Strip, first time they were ever in front of a live audience. And, of course, I was taking pictures and stuff because they knew who I was, so they let me just, you know, stand right there in front, and there wasn't a paparazzi box yet or anything, you know. It wasn't like it was is today. And so I got to do that, and then I followed them down to Whiskey when they became house band at Whiskey, uh, photographed the birds, when they played with Bob Dylan at the comedy club, I photographed Love, photographed Donovan when his first trip came out, you know, a lot of stuff like that. And I played it off of the Daily Bruin because the Bruin wanted to, and all the clubs wanted to be posted up in the Daily Bruin. So the college kids would come down on the weekends and go into the clubs and the Bruin wanted to look like they knew what the hell was going on. So they were glad to have me with pictures you know, in those clubs at night and then coming back with pictures for them. So it's the best of all worlds. I had basically a press pass and very little camera knowledge, but it didn't matter. I knew a good band when I heard one. So I did that through most of the 60s and or the late 60s. And in 67, I went up to Monterey Pop. And coming back from Monterey Pop, it was late in the afternoon. I was pretty much burned out. Didn't want to drive all the way through to LA. And we'd been told that there was a place we could crash on the Big Sur coast that would be open to us to, you know, camp. And it was called Limekiln Creek. And I got in there late in the evening and, and just crashed out in my car and got up in the morning and, you know, the drumming had started and there were smoky campfires going, people, you know, passing joints around and stuff. And I was like, I've had already three days of this nonstop and I, I can't take it anymore. And I walked off into the woods and started following one of the trails that ran alongside the, it's a tri-fork of rivers that come down into Limekiln. And I got a pretty long way up one of them. And I thought I would, in the middle of a lot of beautiful redwoods and big ferns, I thought I'd go sit by the creek and just not hear 
bongo drums and anything else. Just listen to the river and everything. And while I was sitting there, I began having an internal conversation with myself about what I was doing with my photography and where I thought it was going and what I was doing with my college education. And I had been given for Christmas, probably, some years back, Elliot Porter's, one of Elliot Porter's first books, In Wildness is the Preservation of the World. And then more recently, I had been given Glen Canyon, The Place No One Knew. And what I saw in that book was Elliot Porter, for the first time, actually choosing a, a line in the sand and saying, this dam that's flooding the 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 river canyon I'm photographing should have never been built. And I'd never seen a picture book come out with a political essay in it like that. And I was fascinated with that as an idea. And sitting there having that conversation with myself, I said, you know, if I could do what Porter did, but be in front of the issue rather than afterwards, so that you actually can do something about the issue and stop it if, if it's all, at all possible, I would like to have a career doing that. That would be a cool thing to do. Now, I had no idea how to get from rock and roll photography to that place or even what that place looked like. But I was surrounded by this redwood forest and these streams, and I'd never really taken like a landscape picture in my life. You know, landscape to me was the inside of the whiskey. And yeah, I had my cameras with me and I had a tripod and I thought, okay, well, let's just see what these pictures look like when you get back to UCLA. And they were terrible because I didn't know anything about shooting the landscape, but I could see the promise of it. And so I started going back on my weekends, going back to Lime Kiln and camping again and taking advantage of the fact that we were welcome to be camping there and photographing more and more and more um, more aware each time, uh, which made the pictures get better and better. And I could see that happening. And then it kind of came full circle as a project. I, you know, saw that working in that way would take me someplace. And so when I graduated from college, not very long thereafter, I, I moved to Sun Valley, Idaho. I began doing ski photography. I began doing photography for real estate groups of houses that were under construction, things like that. And I had the whole of Sun Valley and Idaho, Salmon River Valley, Idaho, to photograph in. And so I began doing pictures of the landscape there. And I was getting better and better, and I was learning to use a view camera, and, you know, more technical than certainly when I was at UCLA. And I got a chance to move to the East Coast and work on a project in the Hudson River Valley. I got a commission from the Lila Wallace Fund and they hired three photographers to be in residence for two years and to photograph anything they wanted in the Hudson River Valley. And the reason they wanted to do that was they wanted to create some buzz around the work and publish. And they were going to use it to drive a campaign to rebuild historical buildings and to clean up the river. And I thought, well, if that's the case and they're going to have a political point of view with this, then I'm going to infuse the photography with politics. And I began photographing the industrial sites and the falling down historic buildings and, you know, that kind of stuff as well. And the landscape, of course. And when I went in to see the general counsel for the Wallace Fund, I said, look, you know, you don't have to use these pictures. I know you probably want the beauty shots, but I've got like the Indian Point Atomic Power Plant. I've got the logging that goes on in the, in the upper lakes basin. 
I've got, you know, toxic plants in Albany that are dumping into the river. I, you know, I photographed it all. And they were like, oh, we want to put that in the book. And I'm like, seriously? And when we took it to Aperture, Aperture absolutely didn't want to do that. And basically, yeah, they, they didn't want, you know, oh, you're going to ruin your market. Who's going to want to see a picture of the atomic power plant? You know, and to some degree, from a pure picture book point of view, I can understand that. But the Wallace Fund said, sorry, we'll take this elsewhere and publish it elsewhere. If you don't want to put these pictures in it, I'm sure Viking or Abrams will do it. And Aperture was like, OK, OK, you know, we'll do it. Well, them claiming that we weren't going to succeed with a book like that. We printed 10,000 copies and sold them in three weeks. So it, that had nothing to do with it at all. And that led me to the Tongass Rainforest Project. And that was my next shot. And we put as many clear cuts in that book as we had pictures of the, the, the virginal landscape. And so, and, you know, I, I began to see that I was being led to these projects. But then as I stepped back and said, in the style I am developing around myself, how can I address these projects? And in the Tongass, it was perfectly obvious. You know, you've got virgin old growth forest full, full of habitat, salmon and bears and eagle. And then you have this area that looks like it was hit by an atomic bomb that's, you know, been industrially logged. Pretty obvious the way you can make picture comparisons there. And so I was doing that. And the Tongass campaign was successful. We passed the largest timber reform bill in the history of the United States under a hostile president, George W., you know, senior, and he signed off on it. And and so to me, that was amazing that we got that far. And then I got invited onto the board of the American Land Conservancy. So this is bringing this story full circle. And I, I'm now visible enough that I get invited to onto this board of this group. And it's a pretty heavy group. We had Martin Litton, the grand, grandfather of the Colorado River rafting, and we've got, you know, the president of the Sierra Club and we've got, you know, Pete McCloskey, the guy that helped write the Endangered Species Act and, you know, all these players. And I said, why would you put me on this board to the woman that was organizing it? And she said, well, I'd love to have your to be able to photograph some of the projects we're working on. And I was like, if that's all it takes, I mean, I'm not going to bring a $10,000 gift to the board. So if, if all you really want is my photography. I'm, I'm happy to do that. And, and you know, what, what kind of projects are we talking about? And she said, well, right now in your neighborhood, we're trying to save Topanga from the headwater to where it flows out at the ocean. And we're, we've already begun buying up some of the lands involved by conservation easement. And we're working with the city of Los Angeles to acquire other parcels. And, you know, that's just a few miles away from where you live. You could work on that. And she said, have you ever heard of a place called Lime Kiln Creek? I said, well, yeah, why? And she said, well, you know, for a while that was open to the public, but then one of the Big Sur conservative ranchers bought it and um, he closed it and nobody can camp there anymore. And now he's thinking about logging it, you know, timbering out the redwoods. And she said, you know, we think it'd be a disaster and that it's a 700 plus acre watershed and we're thinking of making him an offer. And the Packard Foundation will give us the funds to make the offer with. If we can convince them of the beauty of Lime Kiln, would you want to go up to Lime Kiln and take some pictures? And I said, Harriet, I've been camping in Lime Kiln, you know, a good part of my college career. And I've got a huge portfolio of Lime Kiln pictures. And she said, oh, well, you know, why don't you pick five and print them 
and get them to me as quickly as possible. And I did. And she took them immediately to Packard and Packard gave them the grant and she bought Lime Kiln. And so, you know, there is the immediate reaction to the work being applicable. And yet I couldn't have planned that myself. That was one of those serendipitous things that, that occurred. I, my, you should, I mean, I had to pick my job off the floor when she said, oh, have you ever heard of Lime Kiln Creek? I'm like, I know every square inch of Lime Kiln Creek. You know, that was a, a beautiful coincidence. And, and like with the Pebble Mine campaign, I knew almost nothing about Southwest Alaska. And I was on the Alaska Conservation Foundation board and the board chair was leaving. And he said, what are you going to do for their Alaskan projects? And I said, I don't know. You know, I, I photograph a little bit here and a little bit there. And I go to Denali all the time. And he goes, you ever been out to Southwest? And I said, no. Uh-uh. And he said, why don't you come out there? I'm going there next weekend with a friend to fish. And why don't you come out there and go fishing with us and take a look at this place? Because it's going to come under the guns at some point in the next 20 years. And you're going to want to have the library. And so I flew in with them and they fished and I wandered around and photographed. And they were absolutely right. I got one look at it and I was like, oh, my God, this is this is an amazing world. It's like another Alaska. You know, it's it's more Alaska than Alaska. <laughs> you know, just wilder and, and less developed and everything else. Probably one of the most undeveloped areas in the state, except for the really far north and the north slope. That to me was, you know, handed to me. I mean, I I don't know that I would have ever gone out to Southwest if somebody hadn't said that to me, you know. So I simply try to take where I think my pictures will have value and infuse them in the right way. And in the Pebble Mine campaign, obviously there's no mine there. So there's no critical pictures of that to contrast with the landscapes. So I went to uh, Butte, Montana and photographed the open pit mine there. And when we did our little slideshows for the politicians, we infused the Butte mine and the Rio Tinto mine in Utah with the pictures from the pristine landscapes of Alaska and said, you know, don't let this happen in Alaska. It's not the same place and it's not going to, it's not going to fare well. And so that was the way we did it there because we didn't have an actual mine to include in the pictures. But the scars are everywhere. And, and that's the point, right? I mean, you're, you're photographing these scars, these, these, these battle wounds or whatever you want to call them, these, these wounds, these infections, and it's undeniable when you see that. And, it, and it's, uh, it's, it's such a powerful device, you know, to give people a, a stark choice. It's like, well, you know, what, what do you want? <laughs> do you want, you know, do you, do you want this beautiful uh, image or do you want this uh, ugly reality? Yeah. It's funny you say that because in the Hudson River project, in the exhibit of the Hudson River work, I took a three panel across picture of a beautiful fall pond in one of the upstate parks. And one day after a hard rain, I was in the Croton Harmon parking lot for the railway, the Metro 9 up and down north-south running to Manhattan to Albany. And it was muddy and the cars were all glistening in the sun. And the water out behind the Croton Harmon yard was very much like the lake in the picture from the park. And so I printed them three across and one above the other. So six, six pictures in the, in the frame called it two possible choices for your future. And 
I got called out by every one of the people that reviewed the show as the most didactic print in the show and sort of the, the signature of the show's overall meaning. And, you know, that was my very first project. And I saw all of that coming out of it. In fact, I took one picture and this was a real eye opener for me. I think it was the first time I saw the work in actual action. I took a picture from the Beacon Rail Yard one morning in a hard rain. And it was a really blue gray day and the fog was down on the river and the the rail yard right there was just a mess. It was full of scrap metal and old tires and, you know, just a complete mess. And I was up on a rail bridge looking down on it and I had a pretty interesting perspective. And I realized from studying the history of the Hudson Valley that this was formerly a famous, uh, in the 1800s, it was a famous ferry park, which meant that people from Manhattan ferried up for the weekend and picnicked in the park and stayed at the bed and breakfast inns in Beacon, in the town of Beacon, and come back down to the park the next day and play with their kids and stuff next to the river. And now it it looked like an abandoned mineral dump or something. I mean, it just was a mess. And I took the picture and I um, took it back and showed it to the general counsel. And he said, so why was this important? And I explained about how in the 1800s it had been a ferry park. After I left, he went back to the Wallace Fund and asked for the money to go up and buy the park away from Metro North and restore it as a park to the city of Beacon and then give it to the city of Beacon as part of the program to restore the Valley's history. And within two weeks, they bought the entire thing back from Metro North. And I was like, one picture does that? You know, one picture, really? So, you know, um, it, it, it was eye-opening for me, and it just empowered all that other work. And one of the reasons I helped to found the International League of Conservation Photographers was that in my peer group, there were about 15 of us that directed their work at political issue openly, and we were all friends with each other. And we were at a larger group conference called the North American Nature Photographers. And it was in Anchorage at the time. And I got up and gave a speech about the history of representational photography and its relationship to the environment. And people went crazy. And all these young photographers came up afterwards and said, why don't we create a group around this and, and, and you know, whatever. And so while that conference was ongoing, we committed outside. and. We formed the International League of Conservation Photographers, and 55 of us were founding fellows. And we now have 135 members in 27 countries, and a lot of them are younger photographers. I had a photographer from Baja who I gave a major award to for his book, and he said, well, you know, when I was 11 years old, I found your Tongas book. And he said, I, it's, I've never been the same since. He said, I just saw that book, and I thought, I've never seen anything like this. and 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 then he got the bill passed. And he said, I just wanted to do that for Baja. That's my home. And it's basically ignored and it hasn't been parkified yet. And there aren't enough protected areas. And he said, I realized I could do what you did in Baja. And so he said, that's what I've been doing. And that's what this book is about. And I said, yeah, and it's a beautiful book, you know, which is why you're getting the award. But it's, it's great to think that, you know, we've been able to, as you use the term, infect we've been able to infect an entire community with this idea about it's not just about making pretty pictures. It's about making 
pictures of value. Yes. Purposeful. Yes. You know, the word relevant comes to mind too. You know, you, you part of part of the challenge I think the environmental movement has is, you know, how do you make how do we make our issues relevant to, you know, urbanites, you know, people of color, the investor class. And p- part of the way we do that, I think, is to show them the stark differences between the choices, you know, the consequences of our choices. And because it, it doesn't have to be this way. <laughs> it doesn't have to be this way. And what I love about your story um, a minute ago about that town with the park is that, you know, you, you showed them the way it used to be and and they were motivated to make change. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and you know, Barney was a, the, the general counsel. Barney McHenry was a very knowledgeable of Hudson River history himself. And he just. When, as soon as I said this was a this was a along with Cold Spring, this was one of the two most popular areas that the ferry from Manhattan delivered people on the weekend. And you know, in Barney's mind, I know immediately he could see the sort of impressionist paintings of women in formal clothing with umbrellas sitting on the lawn watching their children fish from the Hudson River. And he was like, you know, they wouldn't even walk across that site today. It's looking so toxic. We got to do something about this and having the resources to do it, you know, just to turn around to the Wallace Fund, one of the largest funds in New York and say, you know, I need a couple million dollars to go buy this. Yeah, that's that's a key point you're making. And, I, you know, I, I can tell you now that there's uh, an artist or a few artists listening to this podcast now saying to themselves like, well, that's that's what I need. I need money. I need resources. We actually interviewed uh, an artist yesterday, Aaron Yoshi who's doing this incredible project called The Land of We. And it's a it's a mural project. It's going to be it's a combination of many murals and many billboards. And it's going to it's going to expand over the next six, seven months. And, you know, it, it's talking about you know the management of natural resources and, and how we can uh, work and live in a more sustainable way. And it's it's a beautiful project. I'll actually send you information. I, I think you'd really appreciate it. But she's done a great job of being able to. She actually is a fabulous artist who happens to have an MBA. <laughs> so, so her business acumen is fantastic. And so she went out and found the money before she even started to really talk about the project. I mean, she was pitching and found the money before she went public. But I think so many artists who are passionate about an issue, they've got a lot of energy, they've got a lot of talent, they've got a lot of great ideas, but they don't have any money. And and one of the great things about you know, your work and your journey is that you've been able to, through your work, connect with, you know, resources that will, that empowered and facilitated your work in many ways. What's some advice that you would give, you know, for those artists out there that are, that are saying, well, how do I find the money? <laughs> you know, what, what advice would you give them? The way I found most of the money that I raised was, I mean, ask. You said ask. If you don't ask, it's not going to happen. Like, for instance, with the Tongas campaign, the initial offering came from the, also from the Lila Wallace Fund, and they gave me $20,000 to go up for one whole summer, do whatever I thought I could do. And when I came back, I said, I need another summer. It's, it's too big a place. I only saw, you know, like a smattering of it. And I, I now know I've got my feet on the ground. I now know what I need, what else I need to do. And they said, well, you know, the Wallace Fund is pulled back. And they're only going to invest in New York from now on. They're not going to 
range more widely. And I said, well, do you have any ideas? And Barney said, well, you know, I've got this guy. He runs a boat up there that's a luxury cruise boat, and they bring very high-end guests on, and they tour them around through the Tongas. And um, they're based out of Palm Beach, Florida, and and they have a foundation. And, you know, maybe, maybe you'd have some luck there. And I was like, fine, will you do the introduction? And Barney did it, and I flew to Palm Beach. And the guy was Michael McIntosh. And as luck would have it, he had just founded the little group called NRDC. And I showed him the pictures from the first summer shoot and told him what we were working on. And he said, so Barney can't help you this summer. And I said, no. And he said, what do you need? And I said, you know, $20,000. And he said, fine. You know, I mean, literally, I, I just met the guy like 12, 12 minutes ago. And he's already saying, you know, fine, we'll do that. And he said, you've never been on one of my boats, have you? And I said, no, I have not. And he said, why don't you come aboard for one of our cruises and benefit from the naturalists on board and, and, you know, the the experiences of being on our boat. And so I ended up over four years of work, I ended up being on that boat like three times. They were very, very expensive to go on and they were very generous to invite me on. And really getting around in the Tongass is by boat and by plane are the only ways you can do it. There's very, very little roadway. And so then we got down to the publishing of the book and Michael said, what are you going to do with it? And I said, well, I suppose we're going to like hand it out on Capitol Hill and do the whole thing with the Congress and whatever. And he said, well, you know, that's a lot of handing out to do. You can't do that all by yourself. One person can't do it all. You need a team. And, you know, who's paying for these books? And I said, well, I probably will out of the run that Aperture does. And he goes, no, that's ridiculous. He's, you know, so he said, I'll give you $10,000 to buy the 552 books that we need for the Congress. And then I'm going to get NRDC interns to help you hand them all out. You go see the, the the key people that, you know, represent you, Barbara Boxer and Diane Feinstein and, you know, the like Nancy Pelosi. And we'll send we'll send the NRDC runners to offices you don't you've never even heard of. But we'll make sure everybody gets a copy of the book. Well, that was a huge thing. And then four years later, I put together a Tongas exhibit for the Smithsonian. And it was going to open in the Natural Museum of Natural History on Earth Day. And, you know, he wanted it to have more publicity than the Smithsonian would spend on it. And so he gave them $10,000 to do a better job with their publicity. You know, so here's, you know, I'm not even asking for that money anymore. It's just coming because it's all interconnected. But if I hadn't immediately gotten on a plane and gone down there and asked, yeah, it would have never happened. Turns out it's actually not that complicated. <laughs> it turns out it's actually not rocket science. It's powerfully simple. Ask. When I began to work on the Pebble Mine campaign, I had Ted Turner's son had just graduated from Rhode Island School of Design, and he was starting up his own film company. And so he agreed to pay his own way to be my intern if he could shoot some film along the way, too. And I needed help in the field carrying gear and whatever. And so wedding made in heaven. And so when we finished the shoot, Rhett said to me, so what, what's your next step? And I said, well, I'll take it to Aperture and I'll try to get it published as a book. And, you know, then I've got to do some fundraising. And he said, what do you think they're going to want? And I said, I probably about thirty or 35000 to do 
five to 7,000 copies. And Rhett said, well, why don't you submit a proposal to my dad's foundation, the Turner Family Foundation? And he said, we can find you $35,000. And it's like, I didn't even ask. (laughs) Well, and that, but see, and that also gets to an important point, which is about communicating effectively, talking to people, telling your story, being open and just being, you know, interested and passionate, enthusiastic about your work. I mean, so many artists I know are, you know, maybe they're shy, maybe they're introverted, maybe they're, you know, too humble or whatever. But the reality is, as I tell artists all the time, it's okay to be introverted. It's okay to hate people. I hate people too, (laughs) but, (laughs) but it's not okay to be inarticulate about your work. Right. And and when, when, you know, and when you're talking and you're just having these conversations like normal people do, good things happen like that. Well, and you know, I also kind of subtly infected Brett by taking him to Southwest with me. I mean, he spent three months in that landscape and knew exactly what I was doing and why I was doing it and realized the value of it. And the Turner Family Foundation is, you know, very environmentally committed and conscious. It was a wedding. It was a perfect wedding. How many books do you have to this uh, day, Robert? How many how many books with your name on it? Nine nine books. One of them is a curatorial project called American Photographers and the National Parks, and I do have work in it, but it goes all the way back to the early photographers in Yosemite and and Yellowstone, William Henry Jackson and Watkins and Moybridge, and then it comes forward to my my contemporaries. And it was a, a way of looking at the whole history of landscape in, in North America, landscape photography in North America, and its direct relationship to the politics of the environment. It's William Henry Jackson's photographs of Yellowstone that allowed Yellowstone to be created as the first national park. It's Watkins and Moybridge's photographs of Yosemite that got Yosemite put into a protected status by Lincoln. So um, it wasn't made a park yet, but they put it into, they called it a national pleasuring ground. <laughs> By the way, we need a lot more of those. <laughs> Sounds a little twisted to me. <laughs> I would I would vote for that uh, today. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so that book, I, I at the time was serving as curator of photography for the National Park Foundation in Washington, D.C. And that was my first big book. And I was in it, but so were a lot of other images and other photographers. And then that opened the door for me to meet the Wallace Fund in New York. And that was the Hudson River book. And we published that with Aperture, and then we did the Tongass Rainforest. We did Overlooked in America, the Success and Failure of Federal Land Management. Then out of the blue, my two favorite calls of all time in my life were I was busy signing an edition in my studio, and it's really a repetitive task when you've got to do like 50 prints and, you know, whatever. And the telephone rings, and I'm thinking, I don't know how to do this I but I pick it up. Voice on the other end says, hi, this is uh, Robert Redford, and we've never met, but I'd like to talk to you about my Sundance Institute. And I thought it was somebody pulling my leg, and I said, you know what? I really don't have time for this today, and I hung up on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, by the way, by, by the way, Robert still tells that story to this day. <laughs> a few minutes later, the phone rings again, and Redford says, before you hang up on me, we have a common friend. Elko Wolf. Well, Elko was a representative for Polaroid Corporation, and that's a pretty obscure person to reference. And I was like, what? And then I was like, 
oh my God, is this really Robert Redford? And he said, yeah. <laughs> and I said, well, why are you calling me? And he said, well, do you know anything about Sundance Institute? And I said, you know, I know that you've created it and it's in Utah and, you know, it's near your resort. Why? And he said, well, we have an artist in residence program and I'm calling, we've never had a visual artist in residence. Twyla Tharp is our choreographer in residence at the moment. And I've got a couple of young screenplay writers that are in residence at the moment. Would you like to be the first visual artist in residence? Bang. That was like, what? Did that happen on the phone just now? You know? So I've had a number of weird phone conversations like that. And another was, similarly, I was in my studio and the phone rings. This guy who says his name kind of quickly and then starts to rattle off on this project. And he claims he's got this boat and that he's going to go through the Northwest Passage. He's going to be the first private yacht to ever get through the Northwest Passage. And there's some risk involved and it may take as long as two months to do it. And there's going to be a bunch of scientists from the Explorers Club on board. And I'm an Explorers Club member. And would I like to be the photographer for the journey? And I was like, yeah, but Explorers Club very often puts together explorations, but they're all co-paid and you have to pay your share to be part of the expedition. And crossing the Arctic on an expensive yacht sounded to me like it could be really expensive. Very so I expensive, said, yeah. yeah. So I know is this a CRC, a Explorers Club project. And he said, yes, and we have a flag. We've been awarded a flag for it also. And I was like, wow, okay, so what's going to be the copay? And he said, I'm not asking you to copay. I'm inviting you to be my guest. And I said, I'm sorry, who is this again? And he said, I'm William E. Simon, former secretary of the Treasury to Reagan. And I ran for president last year. And I was like, oh, my God. And you, how do you know me? And he said, well, of the six guests that I'm bringing on board, four of them recommended you as the photographer. When I asked each of them who I thought they might know that would be a good photographer. And he said, when four of my friends all recommend the same photographer and I don't know who you are, I thought it was time I should meet you. (laughs) Okay. But he said, there's one caveat. He said, you are invited, but I'm not going to have somebody I don't know in the middle of six of my best friends for two months if I don't really like socializing with you. So he said, I'm flying out to San Francisco next weekend for a meeting at the Bohemian Grove. And would you fly up? I'll pay for it. But would you fly up to Palo Alto and have lunch with me before I go to the Grove? And we'll just have a conversation at lunch and I'll know. And I'll tell you before I leave whether you're invited or not. I got nothing to lose on this. So I've got an address on the Stanford campus where I'm supposed to go. And of course, when I pull up on the street in front of it, it's the Hoover Institute. And I'm like, you know, I've got really long hair and I'm wearing multiple earrings. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is just going to be a nightmare. You got and, the artist uniform uh, on. <laughs> and Bill Simon is a notorious conservative Republican. So I wander in. It's all glass and very clean. And, you know, and there's one receptionist there. And she looks up and she said, Oh, you must be Mr. Ketchup. <laughs> I don't even know. We're not out of my mouth yet. I'm already yes, cat, yeah. right? They saw you coming a mile away, yeah. man. You just go up the stairs here and turn right. And she said, Mr. Simon is waiting for you and the lunch is out. And uh, 
he's in Secretary Schultz's office and they <laughs> didn't have lunch with you. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> what? So I sat down to lunch, paper bag lunch, with Secretary Schultz and former Secretary Bill Simon. And they got about halfway through their lunch and Bill just stood up and reached across the table and shook my hand and said, I think you're going to be a fascinating guest and you're welcome aboard and we'll meet you in three weeks farther north in that little tiny town. Can't think of it anyway. And we'll board the boat there and then we're headed for the Arctic Ocean. Well, after the lunch at the Hoover Institute with Secretary Schultz and Bill Simon, I was, you know, told where I would pick up the boat. So I flew, you know, three weeks later, I flew into Alaska and I flew to the little town and there it was sitting offshore. I knew it was Simon's boat immediately. Everybody else in the village, it was a native village. Everybody had these, you know, beat up old 17 foot Columbias. And out there is this like, you know, crystal cathedral boat and this shining in white. And I was like, I went to the harbor master and I said, is that Bill Simon's yacht out there? And he said, yeah. And I said, I'm a guest. Can you notify them I've landed? And he said, yeah. And he said, just go down the street to that bar and have some breakfast because it was still real early in the morning. And he said, they'll send in a Zodiac for you and they know you're going to be waiting at the bar. So just, you know, go do that. And so it took about an hour and they came in and got me in the Zodiac and we were off to the races. And then we went north from there all the way to uh, Barrow. And then from Barrow, we kind of tried to avoid the ice from the pack by hugging the shallow shoreline. Bill had taken a a super tanker tug and had it reconfigured by a master yacht builder. And what he wanted was he wanted a lot of power and he wanted a very shallow draft because he figured we would get in over some real shallow water and that would protect us from the icebergs. And it was a good plan. He thought about it for a couple of years and um, he'd been watching climate changing the melting and freezing of the ice. And he, you know, figured the time of year when it was to be done and everything else for optimal passage and we did get stuck for three days at one of the crux points. But other than that, we got through. And we were the first private yacht crossing to ever do so in one season. You were on, on board for, you said, two months? Like, how long did it take? It, it actually, we got it all done in 31 days. Okay. Because we, we had such open water. Right, right. We calculated it correctly. Wow. Uh, <laughs> what a story. Well, and, you know, there's another one of where largesse is really a benefit he brought on a helicopter and a pilot out of Canada to a little tiny helicopter, but nonetheless a helicopter, to go out and fly in front of the boat to find open water leads um, so that we could stay in open water and not get trapped. And when you're down at boat level, you don't have that perspective. And short of putting up a drone or something, you know, you, you want that aerial view because it makes navigating the yacht so much easier. And so we didn't have drones at that time, but... Bill had no problem about leasing for about 20 days a, a helicopter. And then there's only like 50 miles to fly that the boat can cover in a given day. Then the helicopter comes back and sits on the deck. So I went to Bill and said, you know, you paid to have this helicopter here and you paid the fuel and you're paying the pilot, even though he's not flying. I said, why don't you send me up and we'll, we'll just go fly the landscape of the islands. And Bill was like, yeah, that's a great idea. Don't, <laughs> go do that. Make that happen. Yeah. So we flew every day. I mean, you know, literally we'd go out and do the lead search and then we'd come back and report and then we'd just go. And 
be gone for the rest of the day and, and photograph everything. So it made the, the aerial platform, made the Northwest Passage book just so much better. And it, it was so much more informative about what climate change effects were having on the islands. Because you could see where 10 years earlier, there'd been a glacier on the top of map and there was no glacier. And when you flew over it, there was no glacier in that valley. It was a dry valley now, you know, that kind of stuff. So uh, really interesting. So what was the most awkward conversation that you found yourself in on that trip? <laughs> it wasn't so awkward because I was prepared for it, but it surprised me how it went down. Bill had everybody move around the table so that everybody got to sit next to him at some point several times. And so the one night that I was there sitting next to him, he had never brought up anything political with me except talking about climate change, which he believed in also, and which the Explorers Club researchers were focused on or on board. And so he leaned over at one point and he said, you know, I used to have a, a large investment in one of the southern logging groups. And they were also uh, Louisiana Pacific. They were also involved in the, the clear cut in the Tongas. They were one of the two corporations involved in the Tongas. And he said, so I know you wrote that book on the Tongas and you, you know, you passed some rather significant legislation during Bush's era. What was that all about? And, and, and why do you object to the logging in the Tongas? And I, you know, I was like, wow, that's deep political for dinner conversation. I lectured so much at that point. I just launched into my, you know, cut to the chase lecture. And about 20 minutes later, we reemerged and Bill said to me, well, he said, I gave up my stake in uh, Louisiana Pacific and now I'm glad I did. I don't think they should be logging in the Tongass either. And he just rolled like that. And then we just went on like nothing else. Never had that conversation again. It was only awkward in that we were at such opposite ends of the political spectrum. And yet it wasn't awkward at all because we were on board with that. It's it's always fascinating. I you know I have friends who uh, I'm I'm a real centrist. I would say fiscally conservative. I'm socially liberal. You know, and I have friends on both sides of the spectrum. I have friends that are far left, and I have friends that are certainly right. I don't know. I don't know that any of my friends are far right, but but you know, it just feels like part of the problem these days is that we're not talking, and the civility has gone down. I feel like if we talk, you know, we may find common ground, just as you guys did. You know, this is the era of Trump and it's, you know, divide and conquer is his game plan. And he, he he's pitted us against each other. And so now we are pitted against each other. That's why I hope we have a change. Yes. You know, I think the conversation will return if, if there's a president that wants to actually communicate. Right. Right. And be a president of all the people, not just some of the people. Yeah. So I want to talk about this fabric project that you're doing. Um, I know this is like a, a hard, hard right turn maybe or whatever. I've always loved when artists got into products, you know, uh, historically, you know, products are, you know, maybe created by, if not industrial designers or, you know, maybe, you know, fashion designers or what have you. And here you have, we have a, a photographer, visual artist now getting into product, if you will, fabrics, uh, tapestries, it, you know, and it's just stunning stuff. I'm wearing one of my own t-shirts. <laughs> how do I get one? How do I get one of those? I got to get that. I love it. Absolutely love it. You know, unpack that for me. Wait, where did the idea come from? When did you start doing it? How do you print it? Where is it manufactured? How do you sell it? Like, let's go, let's, let's unpack it. Okay. It started when I was still at UCLA. 
my photography teacher in my more senior program was a guy named Robert Heineken. And Robert Heineken was very experimental. And he used photography as sculpture. He used photography as print. He used photography on fabric. He did lots of things. He projected on nudes and then photographed the nudes. You know, did a lot of really interesting things and was very inspirational to me and very, very non-traditional. And some years later, long about the time I began the Hudson River Project, I could see in my photographs these fabulous sort of textural surfaces. You know, a lot of the, the dry grass and, and the belabored fall colors in the trees with multi-layers of leaves of different colors on top of each other and things like that. And I thought, you know, I would love to figure out a way to translate the photograph onto fabric and have it as accurate as it is as a photographic print, not have a blurry, you know, ink-led image, but actually have a great photographic image. And I used the, um, the mural printmaking machine that came in in the early or the late 70s, uh, it came in from Japan, and it, it still was very soft. It didn't have great clarity, and it didn't have a really good tonal range. And so that was kind of disappointing. And I did some loom weaving in Mexico, and that was still too based on a grid to handle how organic my landscape imagery is. I have uh, Japanese sponsors because I shot Pentax cameras and Fuji film. And I often went to Japan to meet with them and, and show them new work and stuff like that. And I was in Kyoto and I was in a robe store. And some robes that are made in Japan are so expensive that after they're worn for the ceremony, the family has to sell them in order to get their money back out of them. And so there are stores with these you know fabulous robes that have been made for weddings and tea ceremonies and whatever. And so I just, I, I was just indulging myself in things Japanese. And I went into this robe store to look through it. And I came on a, an embroidered robe with a, with a swan on it. That was clearly done from a photograph, not a drawing. It was just absolutely clearly done from a photograph and not a drawing. And I grabbed the robe and I ran up to this poor guy behind the desk who probably didn't speak a lot of English. And I'm like, look at this, this is a photograph, this is a photograph, you know? And he's like, okay, so what, you know? I'm like, well, where did this get done? Do you know who made this robe? Well, he said, we tell people that they're all made in Japan because a tradition did that. But he said, you know, the Japanese society doesn't have this kind of time anymore to do this. And he said, we have it all done in China. And I said, okay, so where? And he said, well, this one was done in a city called Suzhou, which is famous for its fine embroidery. And so I took that little piece of information and came home. And UCLA announced that they were one of the first three universities to enter the China exchange program when Nixon and Chen Jiaoping decided to recognize each other. And I was now all my mater. I wasn't a, a student, but I figured I'm not, I'm not looking for money. I'm not looking for you to finance me. I'm just looking for your connections to help me get in. Because China was, it was early 80s and China was like, not really open yet. You know, it wasn't, you had to go in a tour group. You couldn't go in by yourself, for instance, you know? And so um, I wrote UCLA and the exchange program accepted me and liked the idea. There were no other artists that had applied. So they thought that would be a good thing for the program to have some, you know, palpable product. So I handed myself off to UCLA. UCLA 
wrote the necessary letters and got me the official invitation. And I went to Sucho with my photographs and the, and the thought that we would embroider them as wall hangings or maybe little standing screens, you know, things like that. And long story short, that program went on for 35 years. And uh, I'll send you a book when you get off of this, you know, send me your snail mail and I'll send you a book with some great repros of these textiles in them. So we created some spectacular wall pieces and standing screens. And we actually created some very big three and four panel standing screens, you know, like traditional ones like the Japanese do and the Chinese do. And their faithfulness to my photographs was astounding. And the many textures that can be incorporated in an embroidery are just off the chart. And I have several pieces that have over a thousand different dyed colors. You know, the, the range of the range of dye is greater than the range in the photograph. I mean, literally. That was a very, very successful program. Both the Chinese thought so and my side of it thought so. We had a big show at UCLA. I've sold of 36 pieces created, I sold 29 of them. And one of them I sold for a million and a half dollars, one of the standing screens. They're a product for sure, you know. And then during all that time, I often would go in through China, through Hong Kong first, because it's a little easier to get used to being in a Chinese world in Hong Kong, where there's some English spoken and the world is more first world than China's third world was at that time. And then I would go on to Suzhou from Hong Kong. And one of the things I learned early on in Hong Kong was I could have a shirt made for the cost of buying one in an apartment store here. And the difference would be that it would be perfectly tailored. And I had a choice of like a dozen different collars and long sleeve, short sleeve, Hawaiian style, you know, cab collar, whatever you want. You know, these guys have been making clothes for the Brits for 50 years. And so they were now looking for a new market. The British had left and we were coming through. And I always wore, when I go to New York and D.C., I always wore suits. But I rather than jazz up the suit, I would jazz up the shirt underneath. So one of the things I would do just to pass the time in Hong Kong was I'd go out and shop raw silk shops. And I'd buy three, three yards of fabric and take it to my tailor at the hotel and get a couple of long sleeve shirts made for myself. So I've got a wardrobe upstairs of about 25 long sleeve shirts that my son now is raiding all the time. And so one day someone said to me, you know, you've done all this work in silk and you know all the seamsters and you know all the printers. Why don't you make your own designs and print your own fabric? And I was like, oh, I never even thought about that, but I could. And so I started by doing something really simple, which is just a flat design. And and that's a scarf. And so I produced five or six really beautiful scarves and they sold pretty well. We sold a couple thousand. And my son uh, is now two years out of college and he didn't get the jobs he wanted and he doesn't want to be a bartender or a waiter. And he came back to me and he said, you know, my roommate and I have taken the liberty of grounding an Instagram based company in your name and borrowing some of your designs to put on clothing. And we think we've got a real workable business model. And we wonder if you would, like to work with us. And the company is called RGK Threads. And they designed a pair of board shorts and a Hawaiian shirt based on one of my scarf patterns. And we are actually in Shanghai right now printing the sample of the Hawaiian shirt, which will 
they'll send to us and we'll have our seamstress here in in LA look at and talk about how the design is going to be configured when when the fabric gets cut. And then we'll actually put out a Hawaiian shirt and market it on Instagram and on Square. It's a business that started off with one of a kind sort of art pieces that were based in fabric. And then it shifted to, you know, an actual manufacturing of fabric items. So I don't have more to report on that yet, but I'm looking forward to seeing the sample next week. I'll tell you that. A 73-year-old artist and still being so productive, you know? Well, well, yes, for sure. And, you know, and that I think that is the blessing of being an artist in that, you know, if, if you want to be, you can be prolific and be, you know, constantly producing and innovating, right, across these different categories. And what I love about what you're doing is sort of this, you know, you, it's a vertically integrated model almost. I mean, you know, historically, if an artist had a, a pattern or a piece of art that a manufacturer wanted to 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 use it, you know, it'd be a licensing deal and you'd be getting, you know, royalties or whatever the case might be. Of course, the licensing game has changed, you know, so much in the last 12 years since the original 08 recession. And then, of course, Amazon killing everybody. <laughs> right. Uh, and Walmart, for that matter. But well, that's super exciting. I look forward to uh, seeing some samples. I want to uh, maybe, maybe I it sounds like maybe my wife needs a scarf. I don't know if you have any more. I've got your email, so I'll send those to you by JPEG. I have a little JPEG library that I send to the shops that carry my stuff. Um, as I said earlier, I want to send you a book. So, and, and matter of fact, I'll see you in Rage You One, Robert, because I, I'd love to. I'd love to, you know, continue talking, and I want to have you back on the podcast. But I would I'd love when things calm down a bit. I'd love to, you know, break bread with you and and just continue this conversation. I feel. Well, now and I'm a, I'm a collector of your work uh, as well, uh, thanks to the auction. And by the way, that piece, I just was, it's just, it's a magical, mystical piece. You know, I'm not sure if that's Earth or some heavenly universe somewhere. Oh, wait, it is Earth, but you feel like you're transported. But, you know, it's, it's called, I, I, I'm sure you saw the title, it's called at the, it's at the Edge of the World, right? That was a phenomenon faced by the early Arctic explorers. Because early in the morning and in the late evening, there's a diurnal fog that occurs between the, the cold air and the cold water being colder. And so right at the horizon, just absolutely no visibility at all, fog occurs. And it makes for some very treacherous boating because you could easily hit ice. And more importantly, since they didn't really know where they were or what was there, a lot of the less educated crew manning these ships was afraid they would sail off the end of the world, that they would really actually reach the edge of the world. And that out there in that fog somewhere was the vastness of space and they were just going to go off into it. They were the original flat earthers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. You know, to me, that was exactly that kind of a morning. And I thought it appropriate to acknowledge that little piece of historical craziness as well. Um, and I'm glad you like it. It's one of my, especially at that size, that big 30 by 40 size. I mean, I love the image. And then I, I thought to myself, well, if it's small, I may not feel the same way because it feels like, I mean, it needs to be big. And and when I saw the dimensions, I was like, yes. <laughs> and then when I wasn't outbid, I was <laughs> I was that much more uh, thrilled. And by the way, it's, it's going to hang in my, uh, my mammoth uh, place because uh, I feel like that's like a perfect uh, location for it. Oh, cool. My digital studio is here in my home. But I have a 
physical space up by the airport, right where La Cienega leaves the 405 freeway. And half of it is temperature controlled, security guarded office complex. I store all of my crates there for my traveling shows. And that's in the back half. And then in the front half, it's, it's a physical gallery space. And I've got stuff, including multiple textiles. So we will do lunch. And when this clears up a bit, and there's some really great food down here in Manhattan, and you can come down and we can do a little trot through the, the gallery, and then we can go grab a bite to eat someplace. So. I, I love it. I love it. I'm a good buddy of mine that lives in Manhattan Beach, so I'm, I'm down there often. So I will keep you posted on that. But, uh, you know, and I want to thank you. Shout out to the Explorers Club. I mean, that is the reason we're together. I guess they were silly enough to let me in as a member in 05. When did you uh, become a member? 88 or 86, something like that. It was during the Tongas campaign, and somebody said to me, and it may have even been like Michael McIntosh or something, said to me, you know, you ought to you know, be a member of the Explorers Club. And I was like, well, you have to be recommended. And they gave me a, a natural history professor at Berkeley to sign off on, and he invited me in because he knew what the Tongass Rainforest was. So that was good enough, I guess, for that. Then, you know, I got to do some fun stuff with them. I, I did a, a Zagram trip around Greenland. I did the trip with Bill Simon. And I did a North Pole, you know, icebreaker, Soviet Soyuz icebreaker to the North Pole with them, too. So anyway. Very cool. Very good. Have you ever worked with the Center for Biological Diversity? I know who they are. I've never worked with them myself, but I certainly know who they are. Yeah, I was on the board there for three or four years. Great, great organization. And a shout out to them as well. Robert Ketchum, it's been an honor, man. I'm so grateful for your time. I know our listeners are going to love this one. And a lot of goodness here, a lot of insight. You be safe. You be well during this uh, crazy time we're in. Will, thanks very much for having me. And um, you be safe as well. And we will get together for this lunch at some point. I look forward to it. You have a beautiful weekend. Cheers. Hey there, thanks for tuning in. Please be sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. And if you haven't already done so, please press the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram at NotRealArtWorld. If you're an artist, be sure to apply for our 2021 artist grant at NotRealArt.com. Sourdough, out. (laughs) 